Good, good morning. Just you're all well. Um, believe it or not, um, this is Easter 2019, week three, on the 19th of March uh, of May. Um, I think I've done that because this is part. Well, it's week three, so it's it's the third of kind of a group of talks that sit together. And actually, if you go on the website, they're all called Easter 19 and then a different title un underneath it. And um, just to do a recap, so we did start at Easter. <laughs> yeah, we did start on Easter Sunday and we looked at God, the assignment that God had given to man. God's assignment to man in Genesis 1, 28 was be fruitful and multiply fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it and that, that was what God gave to man to Adam and Eve and said go and do and I read that in terms of extending the boundaries of the garden until there was nowhere for evil to be and then God would have had to have dealt with the issue of evil and we know though that, that man falls and we saw in that week how he loses the ability to subdue and have dominion interesting scripture in Genesis chapter 9 I'm not getting my notes so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them be fruitful and multiply this is just after they've come out of the ark they've come out of the ark they're starting anew and again there's that command be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth but no subduing no dominion we then look at how Christ's work on the cross completely overthrew the work of the enemy. We looked at Colossians 2.15 and how Christ stripped the enemy of his power and authority and took back the keys for the kingdom. Matthew 28 tells us that he, Jesus, has all authority. And then Luke 10 tells us that Jesus gave the authority to us to overcome the works of the enemy. We have now the ability to, to subdue and have dominion over the works of the enemy because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? That's a huge summary. Listen to the talk. It's online. Then week two, we looked at what the gospel was in brief. Well, no, it wasn't in brief. <laughs> we, now's in brief. The gospel is Jesus. Sometimes we get mixed up. We think it's a message. It's not the message that he bought. He, he is the good news. It, it is him. If you have a message, then you can bypass Jesus. The gospel is Jesus. Everything else are fruits of work of him in your life. And then we looked at how Jesus is love. Not gives love. Not is loving, but is love. If you are love, then you cannot do anything but love. Everything you do is love. So when Jesus started to get the, the whip together, you know, when he's in the temple and he's seeing all the money changing hands and he gets this whip and he gets it round and he whips the people out, that was God's love. Because he can't do anything else. He is love. There's the scripture, 1 John 4. <laughs> there had to be a typo somewhere. It's me. Okay, what else? We also heard that Jesus is truth. Not that he speaks truth. Not that he gives truth, that he is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we look at the fact that there is no other truth 
other than God and that people are doing some very interesting things with truth. We'll look at that in a few weeks. We'll look at that. And we're talking fundamental. We're not talking which is the quickest way home through the park to my house or, or down the other road. There'll be one truth. That, that doesn't matter. Paul talks about debatable stuff that, hey, don't get hung up about. These are fundamentals. Who is Jesus? What did he do? That our need for a saviour. It's true or it isn't. You can't have your truth and my truth in those. You can pretend, but you'll know. You'll know at some point. We then also look that Jesus is light, John 3, 9, that he's the light of the world. Why? Because we all knew John 3, 16, for God so. We know that one. John 3, 19 talks about that Jesus is light because men are dark and they are drawn to the darkness. And we don't know that one as well. We love John 3, 16. We love love. We're uncomfortable with truth. Because we don't want the light to expose what we really think and what we really are. And that having to know the gospel that we then go and take out. And this week then we're looking at taking out the gospel. And again, as usual, God took me a different way. So much so that I even did some significant study, not on Sunday morning. For those of you who knew, I was here on Thursday and on Friday and on Saturday. Saying, Lord, is this the way, is this the way you want to take me? But this morning we're going to look at, at Acts one Eight. This is Jesus talking, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Holy Spirit's here today. We believe in the works of the Holy Spirit. It's not an it, he's not a power. I've got to get more power. It's a he. It's an expression of the Godhead, three in one. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Look at this. I've got a map. I'm like a real preacher. Okay. So, so there's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world. And the idea was, was that you've got to take this message out. It needs to travel. And actually, if you look at Acts and you and you follow the, the timeline, they took an awful long time to get out of Jerusalem. Some never did. And sometimes that can be the, the challenge that we stay where he's comfortable, we stay where we know, we say what we like, we say what is comfortable, and God is talking about go. I thought I'd get into Matthew 28, we talk about the go of the gospel, but we didn't get there this morning. Because I really wanted to look at the word witness. You shall be witnesses to me and that made me think okay so what is a witness what is a, a witness it's got a t in it what is a witness you shall be my witnesses to me martus 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 you've got to really say this that's the greek word strong's g 31 34 for those who are interested and interestingly one who is a spectator in a contest, one who gives an account. Then this was interesting, I don't know what the bless is, but one who after his example, Jesus, having proved the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. Right, those first two, they make perfect sense. So a witness is a spectator in a contest, fine. One who gives an account, 
I get it. And the Lawson Strong's gives us this bit. One who, after his example, have proved by the strength and genuineness of their faith in Christ by undergoing a violent death. Interestingly, if you look at where Acts talks about Stephen, the first martyr, and the witness he was, it uses this word. Martius has its root in martyr. Want to be a witness now? Being a witness for Jesus is being willing to lay one's life down. Just look at some of these scriptures. Physically, spiritually, intellectually, metaphorically. Laying down everything for the sake of him. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it? To a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We're getting so much now. It's all about the here and now. And that's fine. We look at the difficulty and the struggles of today's world, and they are many. But not at the expense of eternity. There are scriptures that talk about that we'll be hated for his name's sake, but we really don't want to get into that. Because actually, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be hated. I want every one of you to say, Ben, you're incredible, you're lovely, and your preaching is amazing. Look at this. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Amen. Jesus is saying, in taking my gospel out, are you willing to be my witnesses, even to the point of death? Even to the point of death. And it could be in any way, not, not many of us may be killed in this country for Jesus' sake, but what are you willing to give up? Your career? Your reputation? Your livelihood? your security, what are you willing to lay down for the sake of the gospel? Because actually being a witness means being willing to give it all over to him. We sung it this morning, it's all yours, we sing it so much, and yet it really, really needs working out. I don't know if I'm willing to give some of those things. We'll look at somebody at the moment, I don't know if I'm willing to give my family for Christ. I hope so. I hope so. And maybe I won't know until I get that opportunity. But knowing and understanding and having that mindset, that worldview that my whole life is his, whatever he wants to do with it is okay, is really where we've got to start from if we're going to take this gospel out. Will you be my witnesses? So it made me think about who in the Bible actually gave and lost so much. Who in the Bible? And I want to look at... uh, Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I want to look at the book of Job. <laughs> Some could say uh, it's a preacher's suicide to turn to the book of Job. Many people who read the book of Job think it's a book about Job. It isn't. It's a book about God. 
If you can read it all, God reveals a lot about himself. And along the way, we learn a lot about ourselves as well. But at its center, Job, the book of Job, is about God and his heart. So just, just as I tell a part of the story, I don't want you think, to think about Job. I want you to think about God. And there's no other slides because I just want you to focus on what I'm saying. And I'm going to walk through in my own unique way and style first chapter of Job. God summons Satan to him. What does that tell us? That tells us that Satan continually is under the authority of God. God summons Satan and all the other sons of God. We can be certain that, that Satan did not want to come, but was summoned as someone under God's authority. If we are not careful, we can read this like a cordial meeting of businessmen sitting around a table. Ah, says the chairman, have you considered our best employee, Ben? No. If anyone... Full stop, new paragraph. No, that isn't how it happened. If, if anyone has witnessed either first-hand or via documentaries what happens to a demon when they come into the presence of God, we know it is not like that. Therefore, we know that Satan came there under duress, didn't want to be there, in the mighty presence of God, squirming and reeling and wriggling, spitting his vile lies. He doesn't want to be there. Satan, likely in agony and peril, tormented by, by what he had lost. God says to him, so where have you been? Boast that he's walking upon God's creation because he owned it. Remember the fall? Remember the fall where Satan picked up the keys? I've got dominion and I've got power. Scholars say he's taunting God. I've come from your creation because your creation gave me authority to walk there. God, knowing the heart of Satan, brings up Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. Look at Satan's response. This is Job 1, 9 to 11. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Don't focus for a moment on Job. Those of you who read it know what's coming. Focus on God. What you know is coming, and the question of why God? Why would you do this to Job? How could you? Just hold, because God's very honor is at stake here. Satan just spat in the eye of God, sitting there telling him that his beloved Job, creation of God, only follows God out of lust and not love. Satan has just said, they only follow you because of what they give you, because they want stuff from you. Pause. We've got to think about what gospel we're bringing people into. Jesus isn't somebody to give away like sweets. He's not. He's not. And actually, if we give a shallow gospel, we get a shallow Christian. And when actually it becomes tough, as Jesus told us it will, they go and they flee. And they flee. Only because they only love you, only because of what they can get 
from you, saying God's servants only serve God because he bribes them with wealth, health, and prosperity. Stop. Think. Why do you love God? Is it for what he did on the cross? Or is it because he answered your prayer last week? Or because he's the richest man being you know? And if we keep in his good books, maybe you'll give me some of his goodness. Maybe he'll give us some of his wealth. Maybe he'll answer that prayer. We need to be careful we don't offer Christ like sweetest to children. Back to Job. Because Satan has just slandered God and this is about God's honour. Who will answer the challenge? Who will rise on this occasion and wipe the spit from God's eye? The answer, Job. God picks Job to defend him. God tells Satan that everything he has and everything he is, I will place in your hand. That's Job. Everything Job has and everything that Job is, I will place in your hands. But you are wrong. You are wrong, Satan. Job is blameless and upright. And even though you may bring all the weight of the world down on him, he will shun evil and he will choose good. You will fail and he will defeat you. Think about it. God waged his whole reputation on the faithfulness of one man. That man was Job. That man was God's champion. Job's sons and daughters are taken. Job is having a meal. A servant comes up. He's running out of breath. He says, all your family has been wiped out. They were sitting there around at your eldest son's house and they were all there. And they're gone. People came and killed them. Then somebody else comes and tells them, all your sheep. Then somebody else says, all, all your all your." Camels have been wiped out. He gets more and more and more. It's like from every side he gets messages that everything he holds dear, everything that gave him place has gone in one moment. Satan is firing his blows good and proper. Job 1.20 Then Job rose, tore his robe and shaved his head. I imagine he screamed a scream so penetrating that said a thousand words in one moment, and he tore his robes. I mean, I can't quite imagine him then going to shave his head. It's like it's all there. Perhaps he grabs something off the table and just cut his hair, and he falls down on his knees. Now, don't forget Satan. All of Satan's hordes are lined up on the one side. All of Satan's angels on the other. Satan there out of breath, having thrown punch after punch after punch at Job. What is Job going to do, Craig? What's he going to do? He's down on his knees. The heavens hold their breath. He's torn his clothes. He's shaved his head. Fell to the ground and worshipped. 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 To bow down, prostrate before your God. Win. Round one, won. Job won. And won back the honour of God. Brave-hearted gospel. I can only imagine the shout from heavens. Not only had Job violently taken everything Satan threw at him, vehemently taken everything Satan had thrown at him, and not cursed God, but Job had actually blessed God. If we read this in human terms, Job is struck down and lost by what happened. But in reality, In reality, in a realm we don't usually see, Satan had suffered a major blow and with bloodied nose and blackened eyes was flat out on the deck. Round one to Job. Amen? And the story goes on and goes on. Will you be God's witnesses? 
because the gospel is going to need brave-hearted men and women that are willing to give it all for Christ. The gospel needs men and women like Job. The gospel needs witnesses like Job who are willing to give it all to God for God's honour. I want to be like Job. No, don't read me wrong. I don't want my family to be taken. I love my family and I can't imagine them going and I don't know what I'd do. But I want to be a Christian that will stand for God's honour. And I want to be a Christian and say, Lord, I've got to trust you with my family. I've got to trust you with my job. I've got to trust you with my career. I've got to trust you with all things. And God says, I can now trust you to take me out to people that need to hear me. I want to be a witness of Jesus Christ. I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus as love. Do you remember we heard that? In truth and in light. People want the gospel of love and we must give it to them. But there's a brave-hearted grit that we need to get in the church that says, I am here no matter what. I said it on the second week. You know, picture Jesus on the cross, blooded to a pulp, beaten in, in human terms, everybody mocking and spitting on him. Jesus is looking for people that will stand at the foot of the cross and say, I'm with him. I'm with him. And no matter what it costs, and that is costly. Some of you are even saying, Ben, do you know what you're saying? No matter what it costs, it's got to because there's no other way. Because there is an enemy out there that he's seeking to bring down everything that God wants to hold as true. We need brave-hearted gospel, brave-hearted men, brave-hearted women that says, I'm in it. I'm here. I don't want bad things to happen to me. I don't. But there's a bigger thing at play. And I've got to trust God that no matter what I go through, he will look after me. Brave-hearted men and women ready to take the gospel out. He calls us soldiers because we're in a battle and we're in a war. Not against blood and flesh, but against unseen things. <clears throat> Get back on page a bit. And we want to take the gospel out because Jesus is love, Jesus is truth, and Jesus is light. We all love the gospel of love. And it is right at the root and the core of who Jesus is. Why? Because Jesus is. Jesus is love. Love is concerned with mercy, forgiveness, purity, relationship. I might have changed the order. Oh, it's always bad, isn't it? Acceptance, relationships, embracing. It's to do with all of those things and more, and it's right. And we need to bring all of them because people, I think there's belonging. People need to know that they belong. People need to know that they're forgiven and there's forgiveness time and time and time again. That there is mercy. We also need the gospel of truth that is concerned with holiness, justice, righteousness, making pure, that's addressing sin, sound doctrine, right theology. All of those things are true and right. The brave-hearted gospel <clears throat> needs both. <clears throat> the brave-hearted gospel needs both of these things if we are going to win people to Jesus, to Jesus, and not a message, and not some ethereal God who they only follow while he's answering prayers on health, wealth, and prosperity. We love love. We love love. It is wonderful and it is great. And I loved being loved. 
I love being loved. But we can only truthfully understand the depth of God's love in the light of our true, in the light of our true state. But we don't want the truth. The truth doesn't command. The truth, the truth shows us just how desperately we need Jesus. When we understand the truth of where we are, we understand our state, and we understand how true that is, it actually causes us to has to love God even more because we realize just how big and how huge a thing that he did upon the cross and how much we need him. How much we need him. But sometimes we would rather not have the God of truth because it's painful. We would rather not have the God of light because I'd rather hide because men love the, love the darkness more than the light. The gospel of love and truth. The gospel of love and truth. We have got to take the whole message of the gospel out. That God so loved, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, in complete unity, agreed to send God the Son in the form of man to die for the sins of the world. And the love continues, that no matter how many times you have resisted God, spat in his face, lived footloose and carefree with the things he values as important, that no matter how many times you have done that, the minute you realize you need him, the minute you look and say, Dear God or Heavenly Father, he is right there. He is right there. Jesus, who shines a light into the darkness of our souls and brings us into a relationship with Father God. Amen. This is the gospel. This is the witness that he wants us to take out into Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria. It's this brave-hearted gospel that is tough to hear, but completely saving, completely redeeming, complete salvation in Jesus. And yes, I'm getting excited. God's wonderful love, God's wonderful love wrapped up in his undeniable truth shines a light on those things that need to be dealt with and forgiven. For Christians, the wonderful news is that we don't do this alone. Jesus himself went away so he could send the helper. So when we start to go out there and to talk to people about this wonderful God, to talk to him about the truth and the, and the difficult stuff, Actually, we've got the Holy Spirit. Pentecost Sunday on the 9th of June, Andrew's going to talk to us about the role of the Holy Spirit. He's there to bring righteousness. He's there to convict the world of sin. He's saying, guys, you do your job and I'll do my job. We're partnering with him. We live in a world like no other time, a time of Job, not even like a time of Job or even of Christ, when there was much wider acceptance, whether you were Hebrew, Jew, Greek, or pagan, that there was a God or gods. And there was a general view back then that, that, that man, that humankind was there to serve God. Imagine the freeing, wonderful message that you don't need to do anything. Just follow Jesus to be saved. But now we live in a time where if there is a God, then he's here to serve us, as though God evolves around our universe to meet our needs. It's love and it's truth. This opens lots of questions. So how much love must I give before I can deal out some truth? Ha-ha! <laughs> I now have the scriptures from Ben. I can go out there and deliver truth. Do you know, Peter wanted a process. Jesus, this forgiveness stuff, how often? Is seven times enough? I don't know. 
where love stops and truth comes in. In fact, it doesn't, does it? It's not now I go out with a sword to, to, to bruise a reed. Isaiah tells us he doesn't do that. We have to work that out in each situation and each time with each person. What does love look like? What does truth look like? Lord, how are you going to shine a light in here? This doesn't give you a license to branding a sword of truth, wheeling it around without thinking about the God of love. It works like that. A bit like a marriage. Men and women, husband and wife come together. It's given an image of the church and how actually together we take out God's love and God's truth and shine a light into a world that don't know they need him because the enemy keeps them moving so quick and so fast that they can't hear the cry of their soul. Maybe our job is to turn the music off, slow the car down, so their hearts cry that cries out for God can be heard. Well, we will get to it. I did wonder, were we going to actually get to taking the gospel out? There are many different ways we can move here now. We can many different ways that we can take this. You've got friends who need to know the truth. You've got friends who need to experience God's love. You've got friends out there at work, at home. We can talk about the missional-based homes that we've talked about. We can start to say, so what is that? Where you open up your home and maybe create a safe space for people to talk about Jesus. I want to look at two areas, though, that perhaps we need to take the gospel out into. There are many, many more. Reaching the poor, those in need, those with no help. Back to Job. Oh, my word. Job again. Chapter 29 is an incredible chapter for the brave-hearted gospel to set the background. Job's in a bad place. He goes on and on. If you read it, he loses more and more. His, his health starts to suffer, and not wrongly so. He's saying, God, what gives? And the context of this is remembering back to a time when his children were there, or when he felt that he'd... His God was close to him. He's saying, Lord, where are you? Where have you gone? And he remembers back to the way things used to be. But I want you to look at what he says, because remember what God thought of Job. Blameless, upright. Have you considered my servant, Job? Look at this. I'll do it here. When I went, this is Job, out to the gate by the city, when I took my seat in the open square, the young men saw me and hid. And the aged rose and stood. The princes refrained from talking and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw, then it approved me. Why? Why were people so in awe of God like that, of Job like that? Look, because I delivered the poor who cried out. The fatherless and the one who had no helper. The blessing of the perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was father to the poor. And I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. Let me just catch up with my notes. 
Job is remembering a time when he had the respect of the community. When hushed tones, they would speak of him. Old men would stand, young men would gaze to the point where their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Why? Because he reached out to those in need. Part of taking the gospel out is reaching those in most need. This is the very heart of God. Job says he delivered them. Do you know what the word delivered means? Malat. Malat. It means to provide a way out. It means a new birth. It means an escape. So not just a hand up, but a hand out. A hand out into a new way of living. A new way of living. Job just didn't, I don't know, I'll write a standing order and give to that, to that charity that does work for the poor. He was right in there. He was delivering them. He was giving them hope. He was giving them a way out of their place, a way out of their desperateness. It speaks of not just giving them a hand up, but a hand out. Job sought after those who had no helper, those who could not help themselves. Anderson, the theologian, says this, in Job's conscience, sins are not just wrong things people do, disobeying known laws of God or society, to admit to do good to any fellow human being of whatever rank or class would be a grievous offence to God. In the early church, in the first few centuries, when plagues broke out, people would flee towns. You'd have them in You'd go into ghost towns and you'd just see a couple there who were ill and poor, be it leprosy, be it some kind of illness. The pagans would run as quickly as they can. And do you know what you can find in history? Do you know who stayed? Christians. Christians stayed. Do you remember Carl last week? There he was in front of a man with leprosy. And he had to think, and he had to decide, what am I doing? Where am I trusting? What's important? Can I give? I don't know if it was a man. Can I give this man a hug? Christians stopped behind while pagans fleed, fled. Many who were ill became well. Why? Because they were looked after. They were cared for. Many wanted to know why these people stopped and risked all to help them. Those who were well then actually had antibodies. So when the virus or the plague came again, it didn't come back to the town. When Christians stayed in a place of death, it brought life. And they won the right to share the brave-hearted gospel. What is it about you that causes you to stay? What is it about you? We need to increase how we care for the poor, how we reach out to the poor, or those in need. What is poor? Are you poor? Are you poor? What society are you in? We do some incredible things. Those who are broken hearted, we run a bereavement support group that's known in the community. We've got the community lunch. There are other things that we do as well. We've got to look to grow it. And actually now, you see, the reason why society is out for social action is because the church did it first. But the church gets no credit for that. It raised the awareness of the worth of human life. And now the whole Western globe wants to see men and women, whatever race, colour or creed, looked after and cared for. The church did that because they understood that no matter what you are or where you've come from, you're God's creation. So actually now, it's not a unique selling point. 
It's a bit like if we were to do a cafe and we got really, really excited because we got internet, free internet in the cafe, that would be no big deal. Go back 20 years and that would be incredible. Actually now reaching out to the poor, yeah. We've got to go further and bigger and wider so it'll cause people to say, why are you bothering with me? Why are you walking with me? I've spat in your face time and time again and yet you're still here. We've got to be willing to be abused. We've got to be willing to be spat on because it gives us a right to share the brave-hearted gospel. Where else? Just in closing. Because that is one area. And you know what? We can do that all day long. We can do that. We can build plans. We can decide that actually we're going to reach further and further and reach the poor. But there's another area that wins us the right to speak about the brave-hearted gospel. Healing, miracles, and answered prayers. Healing, miracles, and answered prayers. Let me just catch up with this scripture here. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized, this is the Pharisees, that they had been with Jesus. Oh, that people would realize that we have been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do with these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in the in this name, in the name of Jesus. They go back, they tell all their mates, guess what happened and we can't do any of these signs and wonders or talk about Jesus. They have a prayer meeting and then the scripture says, with greater boldness, they preached the name of God. Amen? Amen? Because they know, actually, they couldn't deny a miracle had been done. We should seek them. Now, we can't plan. I can plan to feed the poor. I can plan to do that. I can't plan to do a miracle today. I can give it a go. Yeah, and I do because I believe in miracles. I believe in miracles. I believe that the Holy Spirit is alive and active and those fruits are relevant for the day. And I'm going to keep praying healing over you. But when, but when they do it, do you know what? We've got to stop praying healing for people inside. Mm. We've got to not limit our prayers of healing for people inside the church where it's safe. We've got to go out on the streets and we've got to risk it all the brave-hearted gospel. We may need to think of our words. We may need to think of our phraseology. I guess we could be sued now. You said you would heal me and you didn't. I'm going to sue you. Maybe that's the brave-hearted witness that God was talking about. But oh my goodness, when a miracle happens, and they do. Somebody was telling me who, who, who does some work in the Arab countries that when, that when a miracle takes place and it's at the hand of God, it goes around the community. And late at night, an Arab man, dressed in robes and long stuff, I'm going to stop trying to explain him now because I'll make a mess of it, knocks on the door of the Christian and says, I understand your God heals. Can you tell me more about him? Brave-hearted gospel. Reaching out, meeting the needs of the poor, believing for a God of miracles. And we can all do the stuff. And some of some of you, you're uncomfortable with miracles. Is it really? Is it really? 
I've been there. You can reach the poor. You can reach the poor in such a way that it causes them to be blown away with God's goodness through you. And they ask, what is it about you? For those who actually are eagerly seeking the miracles of God, then get out there. Get out there. Hang around in A&E. I dare you. Should we do it? Oh, no, 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 no. I'll get ever so nervous. It's a brave-hearted gospel. Will you be God's witness? Somebody who gives an account. Somebody who witnesses a contest. Somebody who's willing to lay it all down, no matter what, even to the point of death. There are some questions that, are, that aren't, aren't simple ones. And they'll be on the website. Some of those need wrestling with. Feel uncomfortable about God that would take, that would allow Satan, allow Satan to take a man's family. You've got to talk about these things. Don't not, because Ben, with all passion, talked about it as though you shouldn't. That's hard. I don't want it to happen. But I've got to have a heart that says, Lord, it's yours, and you know best. We cannot sing. We cannot declare that your ways are higher than our ways, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, if we keep seeking to bring God down to our own rationale and understanding. It's the brave-hearted gospel. Shall we pray?